Emmaus, if you would, uh, take your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 is going to be our scripture text for this morning. And as I was walking into the lobby this morning, I had one of those experiences that you see someone and you're glad to see them, but you do not expect to see them at at all. So uh, Dr. Rex Butler, who is one of the history professors at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, one of the professors that Amanda and I were encouraged by so much and enjoyed being around, he was up here in Oklahoma visiting and checking on some family and made his way over to Emmaus this morning. And so aside from having him preach so you could hear a really good sermon, um, instead of that, he is going to read our scripture text for us this morning, and then he's going to pray for us. And after he prays, um, I'll I'll get started with my portion. But Matthew chapter 14, we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 21. Thank you, Owen. And if I may just uh, take a moment to bring greetings from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and our new president, Dr. Jamie Dew. We are entering our second century of service to the Kingdom of God and to the Southern Baptist Convention and even to Emmaus Baptist Church because we have sent some of our very best to you, Owen and Amanda and their family. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here and to worship with you. Uh, Let's turn our attention to the scripture. Here are two stories from the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. 
They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that one who is the Lord and is the provider and is the miracle worker, and he has provided blessings for those here who trust in him as Savior. Thank you for all that you've done through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, our promise of forgiveness of sins, assurance of eternal life. These are gifts that you give to us when we place our faith and trust in Jesus alone. Thank you that you are here. We pray that your spirit will move among us as he wishes, uh, teaching us from your word about who Jesus is and what he wants to do for us. I lift up Owen to you, pray that you would inspire him and bless him as he preaches. Father, I pray that you bless us as we listen and hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I should turn on my mic, it works better. Let me ask you a question as we begin. Which of these tables, which of these tables are you eating from? Now, the family I grew up in, when we got together for holidays, there was the adult table and there was the kid table at holidays. Um, and I always imagined in my mind that when I became a teenager, maybe I would move up to the adult table. And then I thought, well, maybe when I graduate high school, then I'll move up to the adult table. Maybe when I graduate college, I'll move up to the adult table. Maybe when I get married, I'll move up to the adult table. No, you always remain at the kid table. Um, I thought maybe when I have kids, I'll move up to the adult table. It still doesn't matter because you're at the kid table all the time, cutting their food and helping them. I never experienced what it meant to move from the kid table to the adult table at holidays, but I've, I've seen it happen, so I know it's possible. Here's the other thing. In your home, you may have a formal dining room where some people eat, where you have all of your china and your glassware and everyone speaks softly and nobody really goes in there, but you have that room. And then you have your casual place to eat, and they just feel so different. There's something about the tables that we eat from the places that we take our meal that can actually reveal something about what's going on in our life. So imagine you're a teenager, or you are a teenager, and you're invited to two different parties. The first party is at the rich kid's house, so you know there's going to be good food there. You also know there's probably going to be alcohol temptations, 
sexual temptations, but it will be the place where the cool kids are, where the popular kids are. You know that at that party, when people speak, they're probably going to be tearing one another down. There's probably going to be manipulation. There's probably going to be a lot of bragging about things that are not honoring to the Lord. But let's be honest, whether you're a teenager or you're an adult, there is still something alluring about being invited to the cool table, being invited to the right party, to the right banquet. But then imagine that you're invited to another party, and this party is not at the rich kid's house, and this party is not with the cool kids. It's with the kids who are weak and tired and poor and hurting and maybe don't have anything else in common except they've been invited to this one party, but they're invited there and the food is not impressive. It's pizza again. For the last hundred times that you've been at this person's house, it's always been pizza. But you're invited back and there's pizza that's offered. And the conversation is uplifting. It's kind. It's not manipulative. There's blessing, not cursing. And you say, come on, Owen. I know what you're doing. You're going to tell us it's good that we eat at this table, and it's bad that we eat at this table over here. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what, what I'm going to tell you this morning. But here's the kicker. I want you to be convinced of that in your heart because of God's word speaking to you this morning. I want you to be convinced of the beauty and the value of this table over against this table, not because the religious guy makes you feel guilty or not because someone says this, your parents or your grandparents or your friends tell you this. I pray you'll hear a fresh word from the Lord this morning as we look at these stories because we're going to look at two stories that there is a fair chance you've heard these stories before. Definitely one, maybe the other. You've heard these stories. But here's where it gets really fun. We've read these stories, but I don't know if we've always read them side by side the way that Matthew gives them to us. And so this morning, I invite you to think about this as we look at God's word. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. Matthew 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, the author Matthew is setting us up for something here. He's giving us references to the resurrection, and he's giving us references to miraculous powers because in many ways he's setting the scene for what's about to come in his gospel. At the same time, just to kind of clear up any confusion, you encounter these two verses and they don't seem to come in order. So these verses are presented up front, and now starting in verse 3, we're going to read the story that prompted those two verses. So Matthew sets the stage with these verses, but watch what happens in verse 3. He's going to give us the story. He says, for Herod, speaking about this, this ruler, Herod Antipas, he, he had seized John the Baptist and bound him and put him in prison because of or for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. 
Now, Herod Antipas is one of the rulers that comes after someone you may have heard called Herod the Great. And so Herod begins to have this, this power. It's not really his power. It's the Romans' power, but they give him a degree of power there in what we might consider the area of the Holy Land. But here's the kicker. Herod gets rid of his first wife, which would be bad enough, except his first wife is from a region kind of to the southeast that's ruled by another ruler. And when, she, when her dad finds out that her husband divorced her, her dad gets really angry and it actually sparks a little bit of a controversy, a little bit of a battle between these two areas. So Herod divorces his first wife, which causes a minor military skirmish. And then he turns around and he marries his sister-in-law. So just kind of gives you a feel for what's going on in, in this type of situation. And John the Baptist, speaking as a prophet, comes along and says, hey, that's not right. That's not in accordance with God's will. That's not what it looks like to represent God to the people as a ruler in this area. And Herod and Herodias, they want nothing to do with it. Look what happens in verse 5. In verse 5, it says, Though he wanted to put him to death, Herod feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. He had power, but he really didn't have power. He was afraid of the people. He knew that if they revolted and they saw John as a prophet and he killed John, he was in a lot of trouble, and he couldn't take a chance of making the Romans angry by losing control in his area here. Verse 6, But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company. This is the lady, sister-in-law that he's married. Her daughter danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, if those verses kind of make your stomach turn over, you've probably read them correctly. Um, let's just say that she's not showing off her latest ballet lessons um, in, in this type of situation. This has the feel almost of the beginning of the book of Esther, where the king brings the women before him and they dance and they show off their beauty. Uh, it's, it's a pretty disgusting scene here. It, it, it's a stomach-churning type of moment going on at, at this birthday party where this little girl, probably early teenager, most likely based on the wording that's used to describe her here, is brought before this king to dance. Verse 8, Prompted by her mother, she said to Herod, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So now not only is she dancing, but she's being manipulated. She's being exploited by, by her mother. Verse 9, the king was sorry. Now he wanted John the Baptist dead, but not this way. This was not at all the way that he had it planned out. This was not what he had committed himself to. The king was sorry, but because of his oaths, the promises that he made, and because of his guest, he commanded this to be given. So he sent... And he had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Well, happy Halloween to you. Uh, this is one of those moments that you hope at the dinner table you don't have a weak stomach, 
I don't know who in your family has the weak stomach, but this is a tough moment for you because you're at a banquet, you're at this king's birthday, and you're eating, and there's John the Baptist's head on a platter off to the side. And we actually find from some ancient documents that this was not as strange as it might seem. We find other indications of this in the ancient world where this type of thing happened. A person's head might be hanging out on a platter while some type of celebration is going on. It is horrific to our ears and to our thoughts to think about this, but this was something that, that might have happened, and it's what happened right here. And then in verse 12, we, f- we find this. His disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, they came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So Matthew is helping us at this point to tie together John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry, just as he has many different times in the gospel. So here's the question. What does it look like to eat at table number one? What does it look like to eat at table number one? A little bit of a mystery box situation here, kids. So, uh, what does it look like to eat at table number one? Well, it was his birthday, so I found a little uh, clown hair here. And there was a lot of money involved. What does it look like to eat at table number one? You can sum it up this way. Power, pleasure, pride. Power, pleasure, pride. What does it look like to take part in this first feast that we find? Well, first... One characteristic of this table is power. Herod had some power as the ruler, but we know ultimately that power resided with Rome, and he didn't have that great of power because Herodias, his new wife, was manipulating the situation, and he definitely didn't have that great of power because he was afraid of the crowds. So the real power was with Rome Herodias and the crowds, but Herod was trying to keep up this idea of he was in control, he had power. And in order to keep his power, what did he have to do? He had to give a command to kill John the Baptist. He had to use worldly power, violence, to keep this little bit of power that he had. Here's the reality. Most people in the world who are in a position of power are extremely insecure. Every one of us is insecure about our power and position to a certain respect. But most people who have a lot of power, they spend most of their time working to keep that power. Doing whatever it takes to hold on to some type of power because once we have it, we don't want to lose it. It it makes us do things we wouldn't do in other situations. And this is an example of this at this birthday party. Here's the second thing. It's a pattern here where you see all of these pleasures of the world taking place. Now, in the ancient world, from what we can tell, birthdays were not very common, especially among Jewish people. You didn't see birthdays regularly being celebrated, especially in in this time. But birthday parties were more common in the Greek world or the Roman world or different parts. They started off especially celebrating birthdays of gods or birthdays of rulers, and then it began to kind of trickle downhill. But at this birthday party... This is a situation where you have money flowing, you have food and drink flowing, you have sexual temptations and sexual pleasures all over the place. It's a place where they are celebrating these pleasures of the world. Money, 
food and drink, sexual pleasures, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. They're bad, though, when they're used for our purposes and not for God's purposes. And what you find going on in the situation at table number one with Herod's birthday is ultimately it comes down to pride. It comes down to pride because money, food and drink, sexual pleasures, all these things, they are partaking of in a way that says, this is mine, I'm going to do with it whatever I want, and it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Because how has this whole story worked? Herod said, I don't care that I'm married to that lady. I'm getting a divorce. I don't care that it's not lawful to marry my sister-in-law. I'm going to marry her. I don't care if it requires killing John the Baptist. I'm going to do it. If that sounds harsh, don't miss how similar that is to life in 2019. The motto of 2019 is you do you, I'll do me, nobody tell anybody else what to do, right? We, we understand that mentality, that, that pride, that individualism. Don't tell me what to do, and I especially don't want to know what God says I should do about it. It's power, it's pleasures, it's pride, it's all of this taking place away from the will of God. You could sum it up like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. If the dead are not raised, if there is no life beyond this, if there is no resurrection of Jesus from the dead overcoming the power of death, if this is all that exists, then by all means, eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we just die. If there is nothing beyond this table, consume everything you can get. Get all the power you can get, get all the pleasure you can get, get all of the pride, hold on to it, because this is all there is. And that is how table number one operates. But there's another story here. Look what happens next. Verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this about John's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. This is the second time, you can look back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, this is the second time something has happened to John the Baptist and Jesus has withdrew because he knows that he has to back away from the situation to continue with what God's called him to do. Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place, a wilderness place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a crowd and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As we look at this story, I want you to see the contrast between Jesus and Herod in these stories. Herod looked at the crowd, and what did he feel? He filled, filled, ha, try again. He felt fear because he didn't want to lose his power. What does Jesus feel? Compassion. Herod feared the crowds, Jesus loved the crowds and felt compassion on them. Verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Just after this story in the Gospel of Matthew, you get to the story where Jesus calls Peter out onto the water to walk on the water 
And then Peter sees the waves, he sees the storms, and he takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to drown. The disciples often got themselves in trouble when they focused on the circumstances and they forgot who was with them. In this situation, what's going on with the disciples in verse 15? All they see are the problems, the reason that this situation is not going to end well. They see the circumstances, and it causes them to lose faith. It causes them to forget who is with them. Who has not been guilty of that? You're living your life, and your focus begins to come on all the things in your circumstances that are not good. Everything that's hard, every reason that this situation is not going to work out, and before you know it, you're more focused on those circumstances than you are the miraculous, powerful, loving God who is with you. We focus on those things, and we lose sight of who is with us and what he is able to do. What were their circumstances? It says at the beginning of 15, now when it was evening, they said that time is all wrong at this situation. Guess what? God does some of his greatest work at times that we would never expect him to do those things. He steps in at a time that you say there's no way anything could happen here. This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. The disciples are saying the location is all wrong. Guess what? God does some of his greatest work in the locations that we would never expect him to work, especially God seems to love wildernesses. <laughs> when you read through scripture, you find God showing up in desolate, dry, dangerous places. And he wants to do the same thing in your life, the same thing in my life, the same thing in the world where we live now. We look at a situation and say, there's no way that God could work there. And God says, that's where I love to work. That's where I do my greatest work. Watch what the disciples do at the end of verse 15. They say, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So you're going to send these needy, broken people away from the one source of hope they have in order to go and provide for themselves. If you are here this morning, and you are broken, and you are hurting, and you do not know where to turn, you may be tempted to say, I've tried the Jesus thing, and that's not going to work, and I'm going to have to go figure it out on myself, by myself. Can I call you to stay close to Jesus? Sometimes, in our hardest circumstances, we're tempted to leave the one source of hope and power we truly have. If you have people in your life who are struggling, don't send them away from the one source of hope and power that's right there to go and provide for themselves. The whole hope of the gospel is that Jesus is able to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Don't leave him, stay near him, run to him in those times of need. So what does Jesus say? Verse 16, Jesus says, for the love of God, don't do that. Um, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. In other words, don't, don't send them away. This is what I've prepared you for. You give them something to eat. What did the disciples say? Verse 17, they said to him, 
we have only five loaves here and two fish, which is, yeah, somewhat true, because we find from the Gospel of John, it's not even their bread or their fish. It actually belonged to a little kid who gave it to them in a, in a time of need. And so all we have here are five loaves and two fish, and then look at verse 18. It's worth highlighting, underlining, circling. What has Jesus said? He says, bring them here to me. There's an incredible pattern in Scripture of God taking the very little that we have and multiplying it, transforming it, doing more with it than we could ever imagine on our own. If you ever think, I have so little to offer, I don't speak well, I don't have a lot of money, I'm not popular, I don't have a lot to give, guess what? You are in the perfect position for God to do an incredible work in and through your life. What is it required? Bring it to me. That's all he asks. What do you have? Do you want to see me work? Bring it here. And then verse 19, Jesus starts to go to work. Verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Okay, look at the beginning of verse 19 here. What does Jesus do? He orders the crowds to sit down. Remember the contrast between Herod and Jesus. Herod gave orders, and what happened? Somebody died. Jesus gives orders, and somebody is going to be fed. Herod gave orders as a dictator. Jesus gives orders as a compassionate Lord and Savior and creator of the universe. And not only that, what kind of order does he give them? He orders them to sit down. Okay, that's English Standard Version translation right there. I don't know in particular what your translation might say there at the beginning of 19. He ordered the crowds to sit down. It's a particular word for sit down that is actually used in reference to reclining at a banquet. So very rarely in the ancient world would people sit in a chair the way we might think, especially at a banquet. They were more likely to recline back um, when you were gathered together this, around this type of meal. Jesus, here's what Jesus is doing. With his language, he's taking a picnic and he's turning it into a royal banquet. He's taking a situation that seems so simple, but he orders them to sit down in such a way that they would have thought, I'm sitting down like I'm at a banquet, like I'm at this royal celebration. Even better than Herod's birthday, I'm being called to gather to this type of situation. And what does he do? When he tells them to sit down, he takes the five loaves, the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Okay, there's a couple of things going on here. Those four key words, taking, blessing, breaking, giving. Those four words, as the people heard the meal presented in this way, many of them would have probably thought, hey, this sounds familiar. Because what Jesus is doing here. He is taking the role of a Jewish father presenting the meal 
before the people. And maybe, if we don't stretch it too far, presenting a Passover-type meal before the people. And the people would have thought, oh man, I remember my dad using that type of language. I've, I've been a part of something like this before. What's Jesus been doing in the Gospel of Matthew? Catch this, this is so much fun. He has been forming a new family around him. Remember how certain times in the Gospel of Matthew, he'll say, hey, that looks like my mom and brothers over there, but the people who are with me, these are actually my mom and my brothers and my sisters. And in this moment, feeding these 5,000, he is gathering a family meal around himself. And not only is he doing that, but he's using the type of language that he's going to use at the Last Supper and that ultimately is going to be used in the church as part of the Lord's Supper, that he's not just giving them bread, he's giving them himself, which is something far greater than they could have ever imagined in this type of situation. And then you get to verse 20. You get to verse 20, and you got this great opening phrase in verse 20 where it says that they all ate and were satisfied. Satisfied is your next word to circle or highlight in your Bible here. This is a good word to show up in this situation. That Jesus gives them exactly what they need, not just a little bit, but it, it fills them up, it satisfies them. And there is no doubt that you have a purposeful reflection back to the Sermon on the Mount here. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Same exact word you get in the feeding of the 5,000. It's not up on the screen, but if you want to make a little note in the margin of your Bible or just kind of make a note in your phone to look at later, another great reference point here is Luke chapter 1, verses 52 and 53. Luke chapter 1, verses 52 and 53, you see this same type of language about when the power of God comes, when the kingdom of God comes, the hungry will be fed, and they'll be fed by the miraculous provision of God. And so Luke 1 is another great connecting point here. So back to verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied, and then look what happens at the second part of that verse. They took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces Left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay, a couple of things going on here in this verse just to point out to you that are, that are so incredible. The first is the reference to the 12 baskets are certainly meant to be um, an object lesson for the disciples. There's a good chance they tie us back even to the 12 tribes of Israel. That It's another way that Jesus is bringing fulfillment to the story that God has been working all throughout the Old Testament. But here's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's telling all of these disciples, hey, remember how like 10 minutes ago you guys didn't have faith that this was going to be okay? Guess what? Everybody gets a take-home package. <laughs> You're taking home this basket, and this basket is going to be a reminder to you of how good I am and how faithful I am to provide, and you get to take this basket home. Here's the other cool thing from this story. There's a word up there at the end of that first section, broken pieces left over. I don't know how your family handles leftovers, but without leftovers, we would not survive uh, throughout, throughout the week. 
One meal is meant to be three or four. Um, as our kids get older and eat a little bit more, that's becoming a little more difficult. Amanda does an incredible job cooking, but we're always like, okay, how can this meal turn into three or four more? We count leftovers as a good thing. Now watch this. Part of this feeding the 5,000 story is meant to make our minds go back to the Old Testament where God provided manna for the people where? In the wilderness. And he provided manna, but here's the kicker. That manna in the Old Testament, if you tried to hold on to it, if you tried to keep it as leftovers, it didn't work. It would mold. It it was no good anymore. Now when Jesus comes, when he provides bread, it doesn't go bad. He knows that family needs leftovers. His bread is not only good for one day, but it satisfies completely and continues to satisfy. Jesus is again fulfilling all of the stories that God has set forth to lead up to this time. And then you get this really cool ending here in verse 21. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Two different things going on there at the end of verse 21. The first is there's an echo at the end of verse 21 back to language that was used when the people came through the Red Sea at the time of the Exodus. When Scripture numbers how many people came out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus, it adds on this phrase, and women and children. It seems like Jesus is doing something very similar here. Or I guess Matthew is doing something very similar in telling this story. Here's the other thing, though. Remember table number one. What happened with the women and children at table number one? Well, the woman was manipulative and the child was exploited. What happens at table number two? The women and children are included. They are a part of what's going on. They are brought in as the full family of God. And if we take that Gospel of John story, over here, the one in power exploits a child, and and worse yet, for pleasure, for, for destructive purposes. Over here, a child participates fully, gives, partakes, because that is how Jesus treats women and children. So what is table number two all about? How do we sum up table number two? It's connected back to God's plan and purposes. It's hosted by Jesus, who is is working here as a father figure. There's a simple location and food, and there's mixed company. This is another example of him eating with sinners, those who are not necessarily pure. It's an example of miraculous provision and it's satisfaction leading to overflow. You can get all of the money, the power, the sex, the pleasure, and it's never going to satisfy. You'll always need more. When Jesus provides, it's everything that you need. It perfectly satisfies, and it continues to overflow. What are the kingdom connections of this story? I want to wrap up with this slide, and then we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. What are the kingdom connections? Well, first, this story points directly to the Last Supper, where Jesus says that he will give himself. He will give his body. He will give his blood. Can I tell you this morning that 
everything you need in life has been provided by Jesus. That he has done for you what you can never do for yourself. And the most important thing you can do this morning is to receive that. To receive what he has provided. That he has covered your sin and he has defeated the power of death. And all you are called to do is to trust in him. To receive that. And then it points to the Lord's Supper because what Jesus is calling you to is to be a part of the family of God. To gather with the church to partake of the Lord's Supper. To celebrate God's goodness in our lives. And then ultimately, this cool story out of Matthew 14 points forward to heaven. Points forward to the new creation, to the messianic royal banquet where all people will be gathered and God will provide all of these good things for his people forever. Can we admit, more than we would like to admit, that table one is very alluring? There's a part of us that says, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but this right here, there's still, there's still a draw to it. But it will never satisfy. It is not what we are called to. Table two is very simple. My cup even fell over. It's very simple. But it is very beautiful. And very powerful. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to pray for us. And then after I pray for us, we're going to begin to pass out the elements for the Lord's Supper. Those of you who are helping, as soon as I'm finished praying, if you would just move to those tables, you don't need to wait for me, just move to those tables after I pray and begin to pass out those elements. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, and as we do, I want you to know that this is something we do as believers, as followers of Jesus. We do it to remember what he has done in our lives. If you are here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would ask you in this moment to consider what your relationship with God is. That you would know how good he is. And that you would receive that. You would trust in him. Father, we come before you right now thanking you for this morning, God. There's been so much good music. It's been so good to pray together. Your word with these stories that we might have heard before, but God, it's so good to hear a fresh word of how it impacts our life and how it impacts our church. And now, God, as we gather for a time of the Lord's Supper, I pray that this would be a powerful time of worship for our church. God, let us reflect. Let us remember. Let each of us ponder our relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.